0: Amen, and please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 7. This morning, we will be looking at this chapter as a whole, as we continue the story of Noah and the great flood. And today's passage will be a beautiful test for the theme of this series, which has been gospel foundations. Rarely in Scripture do you see a level of judgment as severe as in the flood account. Over the last few weeks, we have come to see just how wicked the world was and how their hearts were turned against God and the people of God. All would face the cleansing power of the flood save Noah and his family. God, in his mercy, not only spared Noah, but also some of the animals to continue their lives after the waters subsided. And while we should and must see this event as an act of divine judgment and feel the weightiness of it, we must also see how God protected Noah and his family. How God sheltered them with his own hand and carried them safely within the ark. Because the New Testament speaks of the flood as an act of saving grace to the church, we need to fully consider what this means for us today. The world may, or even better, will grow more and more hostile to the church, but we are promised safety from God just as Noah and his family received safety. That does not mean we will escape hardship and difficult moments. Rather, even in those moments, we are reminded of the love of the Father. With that being said, please turn with me to your copy of God's Word. You can also find the passage on the insert uh, along that came along with your bulletin. I will read this morning the Word of the Lord. Beginning in Genesis chapter seven through the end of the chapter. Then the Lord said to Noah, "Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you were righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and His mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, all of the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of the flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on earth. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let us go to him now in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, lest you open our minds, our ears, our eyes, and our hearts today, we will not receive your word. We may hear it, we may even agree with it, but unless your spirit moves in us, we will not be changed by it. And so I plea with you this morning, O oh Lord, that you would awaken us spiritually, that you would pour out your spirit richly upon us, that you would open us, that we might receive your word and that it might change us from the inside out. Lord, we know there are many ways to worship you wrongly, even if externally everything looks fine. What matters is what's in our heart. We see that in the life of Noah. Noah. And we see it expressed in the lives of those who were not saved in the great flood. I pray that we would take these truths, that they would challenge us and change us and draw us closer to you. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Often when you consider the story of Noah and the flood, it's done in almost a cartoonish way. To bring up images of a cruise ship. Noah and his family are enjoying a vacation with all of the species of the animals that would repopulate the earth. We don't often stop and think how far from true this really would have been. The degree to which the waters rose from the earth and fell from the heavens would have created a storm likely not seen before or since on the earth. Not to mention... The hundreds upon hundreds who drowned in the water, along with all of the animals not blessed enough to be upon the ark. This is a dark moment as God's wrath is poured out on creation, and rightly so. But at the same time, in the midst of this great moment of judgment and wrath, there is grace. Grace to Noah, grace to his family. Grace to creation, grace to the line of Adam, and the promise that was made in the garden. We see this dual purpose this morning in our passage, judgment and grace, in three major sections. And I invite you to keep that tension as we dig into our passage this morning judgment for sin and undeserved grace. And we'll see this firstly. And how God declares what is clean and unclean. We find this in our first five verses. Secondly, we will see how God's promise is for the family in verses 6 through 16. And then finally, we will see how God's judgment is complete when we examine verses 17 through 24. And the only way to understand this passage fully is to put the emphasis, just as I've outlined for you there, first on God. And by doing so, we can rightly understand how we fit into this narrative. Let us take each of these sections in turn and unpack its truths for us this morning, beginning with how God declares what is clean and unclean. And our text begins with a completed ark. When we left off from the end of chapter 6, we read that Noah did as the Lord commanded him. And here at the beginning of chapter 7, God is telling Noah and his family, enter the ark. We read... Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen you are righteous before me in this generation. And this is an important point that I don't want us to miss. We live in a culture where participation trophies are common and are expected. It's worth it to simply try or at the very minimum, just show up. Everyone's a winner. And sometimes I fear that we get the exact same mindset with our Christian life. We all want the spiritual blessing by simply showing up. But when Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, He leaves no room for just showing up. To love God is to do so totally, actively, with all of our self God sets the terms for holiness. Or to put it differently, God gets to determine what is clean. Now, I'm not speaking, and I don't think um, we should understand this as how God saves us. I'm not saying, earn your salvation. I'm not saying, make yourself acceptable to God so He will save you. No, what we're talking about here is our sanctification, sanctification. The process by which we're made more and more holy, we're made more and more in God's image, as we deny sin, as we turn from sin, as we reject our sin, and we cling to God with all that we are. This is a lifelong process. This is a a spiritual discipline that we endure each and every single day. It is a work of God's free grace. And we see this in Noah. Make no mistake, he completed the ark. He didn't begin it and leave it alone. He completed the ark. And it would be wrong of us not to to see that and celebrate what God did in his life. And we know that God was pleased with this because he's declared yet again righteous. He is righteous before this generation. And that's the right way to say that. Noah is declared righteous. Noah did not earn his righteousness, but Noah was able to live righteously because he was made righteous by God. And he did live righteously before the world. This is that sanctification process being worked out. This is God making him clean. And what happens next is a seeming contradiction in the story of Noah. We've already heard that Noah was to take two of every animal and put them on the ark. But here, in verses 2 and 3, God tells Noah to take seven pairs of every clean animal. He says this, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. Now some scholars would say this is evidence of God changing his mind. This could be a mistake in the text or something else entirely. Maybe two flood narratives. However, we reject these notions. For as we continue on in the story, the answer becomes very clear why this is taking place and and how the math really works out. And the simple answer to why God can do this is God can do what he wants. There's your answer. He's God. And so if he says, take two of every kind, you take two of every kind. If he says, take seven, you take seven. As a note, if you're taking seven, you're at minimum taking two of every kind. And so, looking at this, we don't want to get wrapped up as many scholars do to try to disprove this account by trying to work the math to say that God is a liar. But we can take it even further. We can prove the reasoning behind God's decision here. And the first is this When Noah concludes his time on the ark, first he sends out a raven. We're not sure if it returned. And then a dove, which did the first time and didn't the second. Now let me ask you this, if the raven has left and not returned, and if the dove has left and not returned, how are they going to mate? If there's only two. If there's only two of those species on the ark and one of each are left or sent out, how can they populate? The answer is they can't. And so in one way, by God ordaining multiple animals, he was protecting those species He was ensuring that as they left and didn't return, if they did not find their mate, their line would continue. I find that fascinating, but there's actually an even more basic reason as to why God declared seven pairs of every clean animal. And it's this, Genesis 8, 20 and 21. As soon as Noah steps out on dry land, what does he do? He creates an altar and sacrifices some, which is greater than one, and in an undetermined amount, so it could have been up to all but two of the clean animals. This is a type of offering that will be be described in Leviticus 1. It's called a burnt offering. The animals are totally and fully sacrificed as a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. This will be commanded regularly for the people of Israel. And so God, in His divine providence, gives Noah exactly what he needs to not only complete his task of preserving the animals, but also gives Noah exactly what he needs in order to offer worship unto him. God provides the worship of himself. We've talked about this at great length in Sunday school through the regulative principle of worship, namely that God determines how God will be worshiped. And he does so here. He tells Noah whether Noah realized it or not, you are going to worship me and you are going to have the means to do it and I'm going to see to it that it's carried out. God is telling Noah what is clean. God is determining this is the way things will be. God is setting the standard. And by doing this, God is also saying what is not clean, namely what isn't put on the ark. In seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Sin has marred every one that was not on the ark. Their thoughts and actions were toward evil continually and required judgment. Noah did not determine who was not clean. Noah simply obeyed God and did what was commanded of him. Noah's obedience did not make these things clean. God declaring them clean did. And so we must be very careful that we do not declare What is unclean, what God has declared clean. Again, we read these words at the conclusion of this section. Noah did all that God had commanded him. This will lead to blessing for Noah. But not just for him, blessing also for his family. And let's look at our second section to see how God's promise is for the family. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. He's not a young man when he entered the ark. God had provided for him 600 years and would surely continue to do so through his time upon the ark. Still, this had to have been an act of faith to enter the ark. It must have taken great courage. For even though God commanded it, Noah built it with his own hands. He knew his own sin. He knew his own shortcomings. He knew of his own weaknesses. You would imagine he would have to wonder if that would affect the vessel of deliverance that he was about to embark upon. I know it would for me. But more importantly, Noah knew the Lord. Noah entered a ship that he built with his own hands because he trusted God greater than he trusted himself. And not just for him, but also for his family. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. We've mentioned it before, but it's, it's worth seeing again here. Throughout the account of Noah, he is the only one declared righteous. Yet there's seven others aboard that ark. Why are they there? Why are they there if he's the only one righteous? Because God's promise is to the family. Noah is declared righteous and yet his wife and children are wrapped up in this as well. And this is how Christ's love works. Christ's sacrifice was for the family, for the community. We believe in covenant, a covenant-keeping God. God spared a whole family due to the righteousness of an individual. Listen to what it says. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. We must appreciate this passage. It shows us that family ties are important. God has in mind a covenant or community-based family. Throughout the husband is found salvation for his wife. And through their faith, the children are likewise saved. And this is how God relates to us. We find salvation through Christ. We are adopted children of God. And that makes us equal participants of the covenant of grace. Through Christ's righteousness, We are saved from the wrath of God and sheltered safely under his protection, those who trust in him by faith. We also see here a reminder of what family looks like. Think about it. If the children are saved to help populate the earth, just from a mathematical standpoint, why do they only have one wife each? If the goal was quantity, wouldn't it have made sense for them to take multiple wives with them? No. The biblical mandate is for one man and one woman to enter into marriage. This will not change even when circumstances make it more convenient to follow a different practice. God would use his already proclaimed word in Genesis 2 to fulfill this situation in Genesis 7. We cannot change the rules when they seem to hinder us or be outdated. We must submit to the eternal word of God. And we're here today because it worked. Make note of that. God's plan, as he had already commanded it and laid it out, worked. Now, third truth of this passage as it relates to family is just how much God's care and God's hand is upon it. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. All of those that found salvation in the ark found it at the hand of the Lord. God shut the door. What happens when you create a giant ark and fill it with giant animals and lots of people and lots of food and you don't shut the door? It sinks. What if you get to that day and you can't lift the door? It's too heavy. You weren't as clever as you thought you were and you engineered it too big. It sinks. Unless you've got a God that can pick it up with his own hand and shut it and seal it and ensure that even with your shoddy workmanship, it is going to be airtight and waterproof and is going to safely preserve and promote life. That's the God we serve. That's the God that Noah served. This should again draw our attention to Christ. Christ does not come to teach us how to save ourselves. If you're reading that into the New Testament, come see me after the service. We need to talk. Christ came and sacrificed himself for us. John 10, 18 reminds us of how Jesus laid down his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Jesus lays down his own life to save his people. He ensured it with his own hands, thus guaranteeing it would happen completely and fully through his divine plan. How beautiful a reminder through this ark and the salvation of Noah and his family and the animals that were aboard. But we can't stop there. We don't get the beauty of this passage without honestly addressing the judgment that is taking place. Let's look at our third section. The totality of the flood is recorded for us in this section here, but particularly in Verses 21 and following. All the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. All mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed for 150 days. Can you imagine a flood so great that it brought down birds from the sky? Drugged them to their death. Pulled them to under the earth as they are encapsulated in the flood. Everything died. God's judgment was so complete that nothing was spared. And the earth was taken back really to how it was in Genesis 1. A state where the waters covered the earth. And remember Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, the spirit hovered above the waters. We have an unmaking of the earth, being blotted out. Think of, a, of an eraser to a pencil. Erasing, cleansing. Think of white out. People still use whiteout on a piece of paper, completely leveling that which had been made was undone, unmade. We must feel the weight of loss that that would have been. We must bow our head as we look upon those for whom their sin brought the end of life. And, and please make no mistake here, I know it's hard to understand and, it, and it's hard to declare, but those that were caught up in this flood, they were caught up in this flood because of their sin, Because of their rebellion against God, because of their unwillingness to turn toward Him. Even while there was still time, what a great opportunity to ask someone, Hey, Noah, why are you building that ark? To flee the coming judgment? Oh, really? The coming judgment from whom? The God who made us? Well, why would He do that? Because you're all wicked. No one had that conversation, or if they did, they didn't believe it. They didn't trust God, they rejected Him. And there's much destruction. In fact, there's much destruction outside of God's protection. But even so, and as we we must feel the weight of that, those very waters, the waters that are judgment to the world, lift up the ark and carry it high above the earth. Make no mistake here, the judgment was deserved. God brought a cleansing destruction upon the earth. A reality I want you to make sure you get. Even those that were in the ark deserve that flood. We deserve that flood. We deserve to be shut out of the ark. We deserve God's wrath. For we disobey God. For we turn from his word. We turn from his ways. We are disobedient. Dear brothers and sisters, we're faced with the same predicament today. The storm is coming. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, but certainly soon. Your only hope of escape is to cry out to God for mercy and for forgiveness. You must trust in Him and His Word. You must repent of your sin and place your life in the hands of Christ who bought your salvation through blood spilt. Too many, too many will say, We will turn to God tomorrow or another day when it is convenient. You may not have that chance. Look into the waters. Look at the bodies. See the creatures that are drowned there. Consider all those who thought they had another day before water came out of the ground and out of the skies in a way that it had never been seen before and has never been seen since. Know that he and he alone who trust in the Lord will be saved. Repent. Repent. Trust in God today. You know, it's almost poetic that it's raining this morning. Don't miss that opportunity, that blessing from God to contemplate your life, his judgment, and how you right now are dry and safe and warm. Where? In his house, with his people, through his grace. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, sometimes in your divine plan and counsel, you grant greater illustration of your word than we can even utter. Thank you, O oh Lord. Thank you for this beautiful, visible reminder that we can see, that many of us felt as we entered this room today, that we can hear and have throughout this service. Your judgment is righteous and good. And holy and deserved for those who reject you and reject your word and your salvation. But for those of us who trust in you, we are saved and forgiven. We are loved and cared for and declared righteous, not because of anything that which is in us, but because you are good and merciful. O Lord, may we seek you. And if there's anyone here that does not yet trust in you, may they turn to you now before it is too late. For we do not know the amount of days you have given us to walk upon this earth. I ask, O Lord, that we'd rest in you today and every day, as did Noah and his family. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name.